Welcome to our Q&A with Lisa Van Damme on parenting number two. So yesterday, there was so much interest from our audience on asking Lisa about parenting and about education in general that we thought we'd have a second part because we didn't have the time to go through the questions. So without further ado, I think we're ready to jump in. Feel free to ask more questions via Super Chat and we will get to them. So Lisa, thanks for being with us for a second consecutive day. And there were many comments both on WhatsApp and on Super Chat saying that people got value out of yesterday. So let's hope today will be the same. Okay, question number one. How do you set boundaries to little children without harming their curiosity? When do they, he- when do they need to hear the word no? Mm-hmm. There's a challenge in it. I wish that I could interact directly with people so that I could hear a specific circumstance when they're having, you know, finding themselves in this dilemma between saying no and uh, feel a situation where they feel compelled to say no, but afraid that it's going to harm the child's curiosity. Um, So let me try to think of it in terms of my experiences with my own kids. I have no problem saying no. The question seems to reflect that anxiety that I mentioned yesterday, that somehow you're going to do something. You're always running this risk of harming or dangering your child by limiting their curiosity in some way. But if you approach it just as, you know, a simple, healthy relationship between you and a young person who has limited experience and knowledge, and you have to help them guide, you have to help guide them through this process. I don't think you have to live in constant fear that you're going to do something that's going to cripple their curiosity. So in general, obviously, if they're going to do anything that's going to bring immediate harm to themselves, you have to say no, and even forcibly remove them from situations if necessary. Um, you have to not be afraid to say no when you know more than they do and you know that something is going to be ultimately harmful to them. Um, but it's hard for me. It's hard for me to, can you, do you, when you hear that question, Nikos, do you have a sense of where they think this might come up? Or Again, I have to introspect in not to remember occasions from my childhood where the no didn't make sense. So let, let me slightly add one aspect. Would you explain to the child the no, even though the child might not be in a position to understand it? Absolutely, always. I mentioned this yesterday that I always err on the side of over-explaining because I never want to underestimate my child's capacity to understand something. And also the explanation is going to help them get to an understanding if they're not, even if they're not fully capable of understanding it in that moment. So I would always try to reduce it, of course, to their level, to the extent that I can. Um, but, But I wouldn't refrain from explaining things that might push or stretch their level a little bit. So where does this come up with my kids the most? Probably in regard to nutrition. Somebody yesterday asked a question about whether they should have their kids go hungry rather than let them eat spaghetti and pizza every day. And I feel like this is a a near universal parenting problem. I definitely try to explain principles of 
nutrition and diet to my children. I try to explain to them, not just set rules, what they can and can't eat, but try to explain to them why it is important for their energy levels, for their overall health, for their happiness, for their enjoyment of life, that their body requires a certain amount of good nutrition and what that balance of nutrition looks like. That said, I have a child who probably would not be alive if it weren't for frozen pizza bagels. <laughs> she she um, would eat that for every meal if she were given the opportunity. Um, so we just have to, you know, strike a balance between her enjoyment um, of this food and my requirement that she get a balanced diet that's going to allow her to be a healthy person. And it's, it's, it's a conflict, but it's not a conflict that causes us any enduring serious problems because it's a discussion. She understands. I set rules and limits, and then I try to indulge her own desires to the extent that I can without it being harmful to her. Good. So next question. And while you're answering, I'll need to fix my camera because it's a bit off. What is the number one mistake objectivist parents make? What's the number one mistake objectivist parents make? I'm still here. Uh, I'm not going to answer the number one mistake because that I don't feel I don't feel capable of answering that question. But I will say a mistake that I often see objectivist parents make, and that is setting their kids at odds with the world in a, in a manner that is very developmentally premature. So essentially, sometimes that involves proselytizing to them. Sometimes that involves getting them engaged in topics and, and kind of cultural world conflicts that they're not capable yet of having an independent opinion of their own, but also because of those differences, profound differences of opinion that they see their parents have in relation to the world, giving them a sense that the world is antagonistic to them and that people are to be looked down upon or um, uh, that they ought to feel a superiority of possession of perspective and ideas that the rest of the world just doesn't get. So I always cringe a little I saw um, I saw a meme recently that said, basically, look at this brilliant thing my child said that happens to coincide with my worldview and my political beliefs, and because because we all know those, or you know, somebody will post something. Look at this incredibly brilliant thing my kid said, which either was accidental and they didn't mean it the way you interpreted it or they're just parroting something that they heard you say, and it doesn't actually reflect any deep understanding on their own. I always cringe a little when I see people posting about these insights that their children have that are at odds with the prevailing morality or politics. Or So um, let kids be kids. Let them, let them have simple lives with, with simple, you know, playground level ideas and uh, give them the sense that the world is a benevolent and, um, and beautiful and hopeful place for them. And that people, people, you know, have, have 
the potential to be wonderful allies, even if they don't have the same beliefs and perspectives that you do. Um, have your own, you know, develop your own strong beliefs to the extent that you understand them for yourselves, yourself, and then be able to communicate and share those ideas with people in a respectful and uh, benevolent manner. And I think you mentioned yesterday something that's almost is, it sounded to me as if lead by example. Mm -hmm. So if you are, a, if you have a happy life and if your kids look up to you, they will try to figure out what is the essence of my mother or my father that I find so appealing. And then maybe you get the chance to start talking about these ideas without it being now the preacher is going to tell you about uh, the dogma or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And if I could add to that, because it actually segues in something I wish I had said yesterday. Um, hazards uh, within objectivist culture is holding ideas as a defense value rather than as a value. Um, a defense value meaning something that gives you a source of self-esteem. I am good because I hold these ideas and even I am superior because other people don't aren't in possession of this knowledge that I have. And if you hold it as a defense value rather than as a, a value, something that just helps it, you know, helps you live a happy and fulfilled life, then it is going to make you antagonistic with people and it's going to make you kind of defensive and have you know uh, an attitude of superiority. Um, so because this is a hazard, you know, for not just specifically within objectivism, but anybody who holds a strong set of beliefs, holding them as a defense value, you can teach your kids to hold their ideas as defense values if you're not cautious. Rather than just having ideas be tools for living, turning them into your identity and the thing that gives you self-esteem and a sense of self-worth. So differenti differentiating those seems very important to me. And the other thing that, that so the other thing I wanted to say about that is that um, if you asked me to the extent I'm successful as a parent, what is it that makes me successful? One of the things that I didn't mention that I think is absolutely key and we talk about all the time in my house is psychological self-awareness and psychological transparency. So I think the more you as a parent can become aware of your own psychology, whether that's through therapy or through reading books on psychology, the better you'll be able to understand and avoid conflict with your children um, because you will be psychologically self-aware yourself. You can teach them a habit of psychological self-awareness. And then that forestalls so many um, seemingly unresolvable conflicts. So let me just give one example to concretize that and then we can go on to the next question. Um, let's take, take a situation like this one, one of the one of the biggest conflicts I've had with one of my children in my life was when um, I remarried and had my son, Seth. My daughter, Greta, was very, very deeply upset by this situation, deeply upset that I was remarrying, deeply upset that I was going to have another baby. Now, this led to a lot of anger and hostility on her Sorry, part. How, how old were they then? Uh, Greta would have been... Uh, 11 at the time. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this, 
on both sides, this could lead to the activation of psychological premises that are kind of traumatizing and that get you into a situation of conflict that if you're not conscious of what, what it is that's brewing there in your subconscious, you're going to be talking at cross purposes. You're not even going to be really dealing with the thing that matters in that situation. So to oversimplify that one a little bit, what was she afraid of? She was afraid that uh, by, you know, she and her sister and I had been sort of a unit, just the three of us on our own, and we're introducing somebody else into it. And she's going to feel like I'm being taken away from her in some way. And um, having another child might, she might feel like she's displaced by this child. And it activates a lot of fears and anxieties and, and doubts in her that were very traumatizing to her. Well, if we just speak to it at the Surf, surface level, we're not going to get to what's really bothering her. But to the extent that she recognizes, I'm able to help her recognize what she's really worried about, then we can address it at that level and really get, get to a resolution of the issue. Similarly, when, when she comes at me and attacks me for this, it's going to activate doubts in my mind. Have I failed them by getting divorced and have, being in a position of remarrying and introducing this other person into their life? Um, is it wrong for me to have another baby? I might have fears about that, uh, you know, that that's going to traumatize them somehow given their personal history. I have to be able to recognize and address those in myself. So there's a culture in my household where people are everybody, parent, child alike, is encouraged to and comfortable identifying and being open about what's really bothering them at the root and feel safe and, and understood and appreciated for sharing those things. And I would say something similar happens. Yesterday, there was this question, do you have to parent your parents? When mm -hmm. your parents get divorced and one of them gets somewhere else, then the other parent is afraid that if you hang out with them, maybe so they act out, but what is inside them is that, oh, now you don't, now I'm not, uh, am I going to be alone also from you? So I, that's, that mechanism is definitely. Yeah, if you can get to the, what is the thing inside and most important, it, there's nothing more terrifying than confessing your insecurities to anybody, to yourself. All of us want to avoid confessing our insecurities. We want to ignore them. We don't want to face them. We want to pretend that they don't exist at least that, that seems like a natural sort of human reaction. I actually feel the opposite way, thankfully, because of this culture we've cultivated in my house, but um, it's so much, you can have so, so much healthier relationships if you're not afraid of those. And if you know, you don't have to be afraid because the other person is going to love you and respect you for sharing them. Makes sense. Let's go to some super chats before, okay, now I think we have, too many questions. I'm not even sure. <laughs> okay, one super chat from yesterday, and then we have some fantastic super chats from today. So Phil says he hasn't. I haven't got children, although at some point I was one. Should those like me, people without children, still be interested in education? And if yes, why? Hmm. Um, the first, the first thought that occurs to me is the reaction I got from people when. I gave an early lecture on the principle of hierarchy. 
that lecture needs to be redone because it's been 20 years since I gave it and it's something I intend to do someday. It does exist as an article. It's called uh, The Principle of Hierarchy, the Most Neglected Issue in Education in the Objective Standard. So it still can be seen, but I'd really like to redo it. But anyway, the principle of hierarchy, which I mentioned yesterday, is the idea that in order to really understand something, you need to learn it in a particular sequence. And that typically in you know, modern American education, there's a lot of education we're given that is just handing us abstract jargon that we're asked to memorize and we don't really have any comprehension. Models, yeah. it is. We're just parrot, parroting it. So the, the kind of classic example I give of that is Newton's laws, um, which typically in a high school physics class are introduced as three principles that exist in a vacuum. You do some, some mathematical uh, calculations associated with them, um, but it's as if they were handed down on stone tablets and there was no process of discovery that led to them. They're just things we know. And uh, years ago when I was homeschooling, Dave Harriman gave a history of physics class to my students, history of physical science class to my students, where he literally led them from the Greeks to the discovery of Newton's laws. So when they got to Newton's laws, these were culminations of a long chain of discoveries that answered previously unanswered questions that the students were aware still existed and could see how these then synthesized you know, he brought in new information, new knowledge, and synthesized it with this old knowledge and came to these new conclusions. So it's a, it's a um, it was the best example of a hierarchical presentation I had ever witnessed in my life. Um, so when I wrote this article on hierarchy, the reaction I got from people was often it had to do with their children or if they were educators and how best to structure uh something pedagogically, but honestly, the, the most common reaction I got is, wow, this explains so much about my own education. And it creates a new, um, a new perspective that will shape my understanding of what it really means to know something hereafter. So if you, if you understand the difference between having learned something inductively and hierarchically versus being handed it as a conclusion, you have to go back through your own mind and everything you hold as knowledge in your mind and sort it into two baskets. Is this something I really independently learned and understand fully for myself? Or is this something that is an abstract conclusion that I'm treating like knowledge that I don't really know it for, for myself? Um, and that can be a little bit of a painful process, but also an extraordinarily valuable one. And then moving forward, you can be more cautious to notice the difference between something you hold very independently and clearly and thoroughly yourself and something that that really um, is not independent knowledge of your own. So that's that's one example of the value of learning about education and the principles of education will help you sort through what is knowledge for yourself. And even if you do know the idea that there has to be a hierarchy to link it to education mm -hmm. is, is an insight. So it took mm -hmm. me 10, eight years of teaching in higher education to realize, wait a minute, in the first week when we bring students in, the first mm -hmm. lecture is inequality 
or racism. Like, mm. what's, what's the context of that? Why do we start from that? If you, if you want to teach social sciences, doesn't, don't we need a background? So how did we find ourselves here? Mm-hmm. So, but I couldn't put my finger on what exactly is wrong and then click. Yes, of course, it didn't click. I mean, I read it somewhere. <laughs> yeah. The problem is, the, problem is the, the lack of hierarchy, that you need to start from somewhere and lead to somewhere rather than throw in the beginning random concept that students have to then pirate. Okay. One of my su- summary phrases for the nature of education today is it's all here. Now let's form opinions about it. <laughs> so that's that, exactly what it is. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Not even form opinions. Let me tell you the opinions, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, okay. Sorry, I'm losing track of the super chats. Fabian asks, I have a kid in my life, not his kid, who okay. always wants to play chess, etc., mm. but makes his own incoherent rules. <laughs> Is it better to indulge or refuse? That's kind of adorable. Um, I guess also I it, mean, it, it, we need to know the age of the kid because if it's like sure. <laughs> 13 and <laughs> it, makes it... 17, right? <laughs> um, that sounds very adorable to me. And I think if my child was doing that, I'd want to make clear that there's a difference between, <laughs> between following the actual rules of chess and inventing your own rules of chess. But as long as I wasn't sort of playing along and pretending that, that we're playing actual chess, then absolutely any sort of creative um, for, uh, Inventing your own world, inventing your own rules is just charming and, and adorable. But but yeah, just help them understand. Okay, we're gonna play Johnny's rule, Johnny's chess rules <laughs> today. Um, and maybe someday we'll learn and stick with the actual rules of chess. But for today, we'll just play Johnny's chess rules. Okay. Okay, what a great question by Marilyn. Can benevolence be taught? Mm. Well, okay, obviously it can be influenced. So let me, let me try to inventory what I think the most important ways you can influence a child in the direction of benevolence. Um, you can try to immerse them in a world that is characterized by benevolence. And one of the places that that's most difficult is in children's entertainment. Um, I, the Disney channel just grates on my nerves because it's all cheery and happy on the surface, but there's so much cynicism and sarcasm. And um, now that said, my kids still watch the Disney channel. So I don't strictly, I don't strictly uh, keep, try to keep these things all at bay, but I do, do try to make sure that they are exposed to benevolent art. And one thing I can really uh, rely on for this is their education at Van Damme Academy. So I know that on a daily basis from 8.30 to 2.30, they are in a world that is characterized by benevolence. So that's a very secure place for for me to be, that they're reading very benevolent literature, that the the tone of the history class is going to be benevolent, that there's a benevolence to the, the spirit of, you know, their teachers and their approach to their subjects. Um, and obviously you can create that, that universe in your home too. Um, I'm somebody who I can appreciate sarcasm in, in limited doses, but, uh, 
I, I try to create an environment of, of open, uninhibited joy and benevolence and not, um, not have it always undermined by sarcasm or cynicism. Um, so within your home, ideally in your school, that's the hardest part for everybody in their schooling experience to have influences of benevolence. Um, and like I said yesterday, I think your, uh, your biggest role in your child's life is as a role model and what are you exhibiting to them on a moment to moment basis. That said, psychology is so complex. And, and I, always, I always try to help I probably the most common advice I give to parents is to is to accept what is out of their control, especially in terms of a child's psychology, because the the activating events that establish a child's psychological direction are totally unpredictable. It's often not the things that you would think it is. It's not always the big events in their lives. Sometimes it can be something small. Um, and yeah, kids do have some kind of nature when they're born. I don't know how much of it is, uh, is genetically wired. Um, but there, there is a component of, of personality, you know, cheerier personalities or not. Um, so I, I guess the, the essence of the answer is create a world of benevolence for them to the extent that you can which includes not setting them at odds with the world, even if you're ideologically at odds with it in certain ways, um, create as benevolent a world for them as you can, and then accept that the direction of their personality and the development of their psychology will be somewhat out of your control. But if you help them to cultivate that psychological self-awareness, you'll be able to help guide them through their own personal struggles um, when, when they're suffering or feeling bad in their outlook on the world. So the not setting them at odds with the world leads us to the next question, which is also an excellent question. Should parents prepare their children for the altruism premise that's going to surround them in the world? If so, how and around what age? What a great question. And thanks for the super chat. Mm -hmm. um, yesterday, somebody asked a question about preparing your child for uh, preparing your child for the for a new sibling coming. And my advice was to think less about pre preparation and more about observation and uh, addressing things as they come up because it's so hard to anticipate how any individual child is going to process or respond in any particular situation. Similarly, with any sort of philosophic idea that you're afraid that, you know, <clears throat> you're afraid might take hold of your child because it's omnipresent in the culture and it's something that you don't believe. I would, I personally do little to try to forestall those problems. There's, there's nothing that I'm continually afraid they might, uh, some idea I'm afraid they might adopt. We have conversations every day about anything that comes up in their life. And the way I conduct those conversations is going to help shape their own approach to it and their understanding of it. But if you try to preempt those conversations, you're often trying to talk about them before they're even prepared to think about them or understand them in any meaningful way. And talking about something, 
there's a there was a movement in schools to have values education. So you would pick some value of the week, and that would be the centerpiece around which you just, you know, integrity. And then you talk about integrity in all these different forms. And I think that's the absolute worst way for somebody to learn about integrity is to have this abstract conversation that you're sort of preaching to them about and then contriving different examples to try to illustrate the principle. Integrity is best addressed when it comes up in practice and you and you see a child you know, encounter a difficulty or struggle with a decision, and you can help guide them to understand the value of being a person with integrity, or if they feel betrayed in some way by somebody who didn't have integrity, explaining that as the concept in that moment as it comes up. Um, so in general, I would, I would advise people not to try to um, predict and preempt uh, ideological issues that might come up, but just to discuss and address things as they come up naturally in the child's life and in your conversations. Good. And this is a theme, as you said, that comes also from yesterday's discussion. Okay. Mm -hmm. Three super chats from Lanon. Thank you so much for your super chats. You mentioned not having expectations with children. Can mm -hmm. you elaborate more? What if they're doing wrong from making messes to substance abuse? How does that line up with the virtue of judgment? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so not having particular expectations of my child does not mean I don't expect them not to do drugs. <laughs> um, and so there, there are two different categories of issues. There are addressing serious problems that might arise in a child's life uh, that I have a, a coworker who uses the phrase a Napoleon problem all the time. And I guess somebody approached Napoleon with a strate strategic situation that they had to deal with. And Napoleon's advice was, I wouldn't have gotten myself in that situation in the first place. Um, so th there's so much in parenting that has to do with setting up conditions that would uh, do the most you can to forestall these challenges when they arise. I have not encountered as a parent any major, any major conflicts, any major problems, any major worries about my children. They are very responsible, um, mature, uh, good people. That doesn't mean that a parent is a, isn't a total failure if their child does, does face these struggles and difficulties, but it's a, a separate category of thing to address. I'm, I'm more interested in discussing the things that set the conditions and maximize your opportunity of having a good relationship with your child and your child a healthy relationship with the world. Um, I don't feel like I have as much to say about how to handle um, you know, major crises when they come up with children. Um, but, okay, so the question was, uh, what do I mean by not having expectations? What I mean is that often a parent will have an overly narrow, overly defined idea about what kind of a person they want their child to be. So they want them to be a really good athlete. They want them to go to an Ivy League college. They want them to dress a certain way. They want them to have a certain set of values. They want them to have a certain you know, kind of hobbies. Um, 
if you go in with this overly uh, narrow, overly prescriptive idea of what you want your child to be, they're going to feel a, a general sense of disapproval unless they please you in those respects. You're not going to have a healthy re relationship of mutual respect. They're likely more likely to rebel and be defiant against you because they're not feeling supported by you. So I mean, I don't have expectations in that regard. I follow my children's interests, whatever, what the, whatever they take up an interest in, I try to encourage and facilitate that rather than having an idea in advance that they do a certain thing. Um, I did not even, my kids, it was optional whether they went to college. I don't know if that's surprising to people. If they wanted to go to college, that was great. If they didn't, I would support them in, in that path too. Um, so I mean, not having expectations, my expectations, my desires, my hopes would be that they are honest people who are kind human beings and I have a good relationship with them. That those are the expectations that are most meaningful to me. And to the extent that it's in my control to create conditions that will maximize the possibility that that's what, uh, that's what the result will be. I want to always focus on, on trying to create those conditions. So how about for the last seven minutes, we try an experiment, which is try to get to all the questions, which means the answers has to be one of these fast. Uh, okay. And apologies, people, if it's one of your questions, but we have to we have to cover them all. Actually, we don't have to, but it would be cool. So I have a seven-year-old who is severely angry at every minor inconvenience or issue for no clear reason. How could mm -hmm. I figure out why and help calm mm -hmm. the fire? That, oh gosh, I wish I could. So I have a son who's very, very um, obsessed with order. Everything needs to be as he expects it to go. It, it makes him feel tense. It makes him feel uncomfortable. It makes him feel frustrated and angry if something doesn't make sense to him, if it doesn't proceed the way um, he wants it to. And the best advice I can give for that is to recognize that as a fact of your child's nature at this point to try to, um, in that, this is where Heimgenot comes in uh, as, a, as a great tool, to try in that moment to just validate their emotions, his emotions to say to him, I see you're really angry. You're really angry about this, to try to put words to what is making him angry and what, um, you know, to try to help him formulate, and he'll tell you if you're wrong, to help him formulate what's making him angry about it. Try to get to the point of, calm or wait till you're at the point of calm and then try to strategize in advance how to avoid that situation in the future. And often bringing the child into that conversation can be really helpful. Like, okay, this is what upset you. What can we do next time to make sure that that doesn't happen? And it gives them a sense of uh, control and, and power and makes them feel really listened to. And then that can help um, forestall those future situations that make them feel angry. Good. An appreciative super chat which says your parenting advice is amazing. And if you had the radio show on the subject, I'd listen to it daily. No. <laughs> and here's a very convenient for us follow-up. Will you do more shows like this in the future? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like, I'd love to. I'd love to figure out how to interact with people directly so I can be more 
meaningfully helpful to the question that's actually, I feel sometimes like I'm getting the surface and like, if I could really sit down with them, I could ask, what is the thing that's really bothering you? Um, and then I could be, I could be more helpful. So I'll have to figure out how to make that happen. Okay. Four last questions. And we have about four okay. equal amount of minutes. <laughs> What's your thoughts on multilingual upbringing? Mm. Are there only advantages to it? Is there a limit of how many languages should be spoken in a household during childhood? Okay, so I saw that question um, when it was submitted. And my first thought was, I don't have, I, I don't know enough to actually answer this question helpfully. It's not something I've given, given much study to or seen any research about. All I can speak from is my experience as a teacher, not as in my home, because there's only one language spoken in my home. Um, but as a teacher, I can say I've had many, many students enter kindergarten not speaking a word of English. And I have seen them all within six months, completely fluent, talking to their peers, able to participate in the curriculum, and within, you know, by first grade be utterly indistinguishable from their peers. So I, from my perspective and experience as an educator, can see no disadvantage in a bilingual ho household. Um, sometimes it might seem to slow their development in, in language because they're process processing two languages at a time, but I don't think in, in actuality it does. Um, and I've just seen incredible success with just throwing throwing these kids into an English speaking environment and seeing them pick it up effortlessly. Good. Apart from Mine Run's novels, are there any books or films directed at a younger audience that teach mm -hmm. rational self-interest, independent thinking, reliance on reason over faith, respect for property rights, and so on? So mm. for children. I don't think so. Um, I think I think the fountainhead is the best entry point, um, personally. And then beyond that, I think it's good to reference an article when a topic comes up. So uh, I think probably the first article that's valuable for young people is philosophy who needs it, um, because that gives that activates that question of why philosophy is even valuable to consider. Um, and Uh, aside from that, in my own household, the way it comes up is if a topic comes up, I'll say sometimes say, oh, there's a really good article by Ayn Rand or Leonard Peikoff about that topic, and then refer to them when the issue is active in their minds. I think I remember who asked this, so I have a suggestion for the comments, mm -hmm. but it's not related to objective, so I'll just skip it for now. Okay. Uh, how do you draw the line between giving your child everything you want to and teaching him also to provide for himself and work hard? Great question. Oh, I love this question. I, I think if somebody were witness to my household, they would think I give my kids everything and require very little of them. I, for example, do not and have never required that my children do chores at all. And I told somebody that recently and they said, how did they become people capable of cleaning their own rooms if you don't make them do chores? And the answer is, it just doesn't work like that. They, they become people who are mature and thoughtful 
and they have good role models. And the reason I don't have them do chores is that chores don't mean anything to them right now. They don't, they don't desire that their room be clean. I desire that their room be clean. They don't desire that the dishes get washed. That's something that's important. They're, they're not conscious of that. It's not really part of their world. I do, um, they pick up their toys and it's not like they have absolutely not, nothing that they're responsible for. But I don't think a child becomes responsible by directly training them in the thing that they have to be responsible about. I think a generalized maturity enables them to take on responsibilities of all kinds when they face the necessity of those responsibilities. Um, and it's a similar reason that I don't require homework at school, even knowing that uh, when they get to high school, they're going to have hours of homework. And parents always ask me, well, how are they prepared to, to do homework when they have to? And it's never an issue because they're very thoughtful, very mature, very sophisticated people. And homework is a is it is a discreet and very manageable task. And it's just a particular kind of responsibility they have. So if they're responsible humans, they can be responsible about a, a particular thing. So sounds like create, create, help mm -hmm. to cultivate the personality yeah. who when the time comes will not want to live in a messy house. To There you go. Very similar. Yeah. Okay, can I ask a completely stupid question? Yeah. Does Montessori school go up to a specific age? Montessori, there are Montessori schools that go up through all ages. Oh, okay, because the At next question. We, okay. The next question is in the UK, Montes, and that's the last question. Montessori tends to go up to five or six at best. Hmm. What is your opinion on the Montessori cu cu curriculum after these ages? Uh, that's so at my school, we have Montessori through the age of six. So that's interesting. That's an interesting, I didn't know that about the UK uh, Montessori schools, but um, Mont, it, it is my view. It's not one shared by all uh, educators within objectivism, but it's my view that it's best through the age of six, because beyond that, what you need is intellectual mentors guiding you step-by-step step through material that's abstract. So that when the more abstract the knowledge becomes, the more the less directly connected to the physical, their physical surroundings, the more abstract it becomes in a subject like history, the better it is for them to have a knowledgeable, passionate historian able to break it down into essentials and guide them through what matters most and draw out the lessons from it, um, teaching them in a, in a lecture-based style uh, in that subject area, and that's true. That's true for all the subjects. So in my view, the more abstract, the less the kind of prepared environment and self-directed um, education, uh, the less it works. I see. Okay, that makes that makes sense. Okay, Lisa, thank you so much. Uh, I'm, I have to say from all the daily objectives, these were among the ones that I'm mostly proud of. Not, I mean, no. proud for the channel and for the value that uh, our members who asked the questions, but also the viewers got. So a huge thank you from me and a huge thank to all of you who asked all the questions and the super chat. So uh, we are way out of time. So uh, we're gonna see hopefully Lisa back soon at some point uh, for other endeavors in our channel. So thank you very much, Lisa. So Razi, we have the, there's the essay, cont uh, the essay contest, the essay discussion on the channel, am I right? 
Yes. Okay. So I don't remember the time, but go on the channel. Everything is there. <laughs> Make sure also to have a, the, okay. So today the, the runs discussion, it's in 15 minutes and the discussion, the essay that's going to be discussed is the obliteration of capitalism. Also, just to mention that if you appreciate the things we do, consider supporting us, becoming a member, or go to the shop and on the Ayn Rand Center UK website, there are cool t-shirts, mugs, laptop cases, everything. So that's from us. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you.